From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Shelley Jodoin, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. This week, we've got a great story from the archives. It's the tale of the Evans cherry, a prolific fruit in the Edmonton region. I really enjoyed listening to it while preparing to host this episode, and I think it's going to be a real treat for you listeners. This story takes you through the adventure of a past Terra Informer who went to some lengths to figure out how this plant came to be so ubiquitous. I've never tried an Evans cherry before or even heard of them, but I'm aching to hunt some down after listening to this piece. Anyhow, that story is coming up right after headlines. It's hard living in northern Canada. Beyond the issues of melting permafrost and boil water advisories, there's a new concern for Iqaluit's water supply. A study published this year by York University and University of Waterloo researchers used hydrologic modeling and concluded that Iqaluit may face a water shortage within five years. One of the problems is that the aging water lines have cracks and leak water. So whereas the average Canadian citizen uses 250 litres of water per day, in Iqaluit, the average citizen uses 350 litres per day. The researchers found that a Iqaluit would still run out of water even if they drained the Apex River dry. You can find the link to the study on our website. South Korea's capital city of Seoul recently opened Seoul Street, a kilometer-long green walkway built on a former highway. The project is part of a larger movement to make the city of 10 million people more pedestrian-friendly. It's similar to High Line, another green walkway built on a former road in New York City. Soul Street is a forest microcosm with 24,000 trees, potted plants, and flowers. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples includes the right to designate and retain their own names for communities, places, and persons. This is what Grand Chief Ron Tremblay had in mind when he proposed the name change of the St. John's River to the traditional Maliseet name, Wallastuck. Wallastuck means beautiful, bountiful river. So far, the New Brunswick government has rejected the idea, given that the river passes through Maine, and changing the name would require cooperation with the U.S. government. Those were this week's headlines. And now, the main event for this week's episode, The Tale of the Evans Cherry. Gardeners and farmers alike are all limited to the zones they live in. Since the 1960s, Agriculture Canada has been publishing a national map of plant hardiness zones to help farmers and gardeners plant their crops to ensure their plantings can withstand the at times extreme temperatures to make it to harvest time. When it comes to fruit trees, most people consider the temperate zones of the Okanagan Valley in BC or Ontario's southern greenbelt as the quintessential food-producing areas. Most of us don't associate the gateway to the north 
as a bountiful agricultural area. Despite this perception of Edmonton as a frigidly cold place where very little can grow, north of the city boasts some of the finest soil in the country, classified as number one special. That's where the Evans cherry tree was first documented. And that tree has proliferated over time to become a ubiquitous feature in people's backyards. Many folks don't even know how delicious those cherries actually are. Terra Informers Daniel Dolgoy and Hamby Asawi set out on a mission to learn more about the Evans cherry, where it came from, and who the mysterious man was behind the tree's distribution across Edmonton and throughout North America. Enjoy! So, Danielle, last week you were telling me about a special cherry that you came across, and it was called the Evans cherry, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so how did you get introduced to the Evans cherry? So I first learned about the Evans cherry about a year ago. A friend of mine was living at a house in St. Albert, and she had this cherry tree that she didn't really know what it was and didn't really know what to do with it. She doesn't really, she's not much of a cook or a baker, and she certainly isn't one to preserve and can a bunch of stuff. So she invited me and my husband over to her place to pick the cherries. And uh, I mean, I was I was stunned. I've never seen cherries like that, of that size and so prolific on a tree like that growing so far north in Edmonton or St. Albert. And so it sort of piqued an interest and my husband started doing a bit of research and identified it as this Evans cherry and I'd never heard of it. And so that was what really kind of turned me on to it in the first place and started me on this path of discovery and became something I just had to learn more about and kind of get to the bottom of. So what about this person that it's named after? Who is Evans behind Evans cherry? Who indeed? So uh, the more that I started reading, it became quite apparent that this Evans person um, had been the single individual responsible for its kind of modern proliferation. So it had kind of fallen off the radar and people weren't aware of it until the 1970s when he proclaimed it as this species that was quite specific to this part of Canada. So once it became clear that Dr. Evans had made agriculture his life's work and that working for Alberta agriculture specifically, that he had been responsible for identifying the cherry and then its proliferation across the province, it became less about learning more about the cherry itself and more about discovering who Evans was. And when I was able to find, just sort of asking around the people that I knew who were into gardening and um, sort of backyard farms and that kind of thing was that Dr. Evans was alive and well and, and still living on an acreage outside of Spruce Grove. And how did you actually find him? Well, that part was a little bit more challenging. There are a lot of Evans in the phone book, but only one with his first initial. And uh, <laughs> I got brave and just totally cold called this phone number. And to my disappointment, it was it was not the Dr. Evans that I was looking for. There was no doctor living at that address. So then I kind of went back to the drawing board and thought, OK, you're not going to find him this easily. And maybe just sort of start at the root of things. Haha, <laughs> the root. <laughs> and... Uh, 
talk to someone who knows about the tree. So that was when I um, met up with Ken Risky, who's the owner of Mill Creek Nursery. His family had been farming on that land for over a century, and I figured he'd probably know a thing or two about the Evans cherry since they did actually sell them. So now as far as I know about Evans' cherry tree, it was found by Ian Evans and named after himself. The original tree was found in the Horse Hills area, or northeast Edmonton, and uh, selections were made. People were very impressed with the size of the tree. It can get up to 20 feet in size and width. But you can see they're large. They're up to uh, 4 centimeters, some 3 to 4 centimeters fruits. And they're really a, an attractive, nice-to-eat little fruit. When you hold the cherry and pull on the stem, the pit comes out. So you don't need a pitter. Evans was the first one out. It has a very clear skin and a very um, uncolorful uh, juice. Some people want the color and the juice for jelly, jams, wines, cherry pies, like that. But Evans is very clear. The, the, one of the very easy things about these, most fruit trees, in fact, uh, pretty well all of them require a partner, a pollinator. And... These are self-fruitful. They don't need a partner. You can plant one in your neighborhood, not worry about another one being present to provide pollen that would enable the tree to have fruit. So it's called being self-fruitful. So you followed the cherry to Ken, and how did Ken lead you to Evans? Well... Uh, Ken met Dr. Evans at some kind of a, a speaking engagement that Evans had been at. That was how I was able to track him down. He sort of offhand mentioned that Dr. Evans is a championship lily breeder. And so when I started looking up the Alberta lily growers and all of the work that that society does, it actually had a straight-up phone number and address for him, and it kind of fell into my lap at that point. You actually got a chance to meet him. Mm-hmm. You got to meet the Evans of the Evans charity. The Evans. I did indeed. So what was it like when you finally got to meet him? Well, um, after this city girl made one too many wrong turns along the country road, I eventually came to the front gate of Evans' acreage where he lives, and undoubtedly it was quite clear that this was the home of Dr. Evans. There were flowers growing all over the yard, poppies and um, delphiniums and obviously tons of lilies a couple of really adorable sheepdogs that greeted me at the gate, and then shortly after them came Dr. Evans, ambling out of his house toward me. Yian uh, Evans, I, uh, I'm in my 70s now. I, I grew up on a mixed uh, small farm on the Welsh coast in so- southwest Wales. Uh, we grew anything and everything, and had uh, everything from cows and horses to hogs or pigs and chickens. And um, so you, you developed a pretty broad interest, and we grew most of our own vegetables. And, and uh, I had ambitions one time of being a, an MD, then a veterinarian. Then I thought, no, it was better than went into plant pathology or plant diseases and uh, get into agriculture that way. In other words, uh, what could I do in life that would help prevent uh, crop losses or plant diseases? and help farmers and uh, backyard gardeners achieve uh, better yields. The thing that I found quite interesting about Dr. Evans was how young he actually is. I had it in my mind that he had been sort of a a seasoned 
agriculture expert when he identified the cherry back in the 1970s, but in fact, he must have been still quite green, get it, green, uh, <laughs> when he first identified this tree because um, he's only retired a few years ago and uh, still really active in the agriculture community and, and still doing lots of work with flower breeding. I, I grow, in fact, my major hobby is growing lilies and I sell them to the British and the Dutch. Uh, they come over here, they've been over here, they make regular trips here to buy lilies off me. Also mentioned, in, in, I'm not a one-trick pony with the uh, Evans cherry, let's say. I, I've, I've saved a number of apples from the University of Alberta 1960s program. Very good apples. Uh, all kinds of exotic uh, plums and things that'll grow here. Uh, royalty crab apple types, the one I picked up in Edmonton. Beautifully dark crab, colored crab apple that is resistant to fire blight. I, when I first moved into Edmonton, I started looking at things and growing different plants and trees and shrubs and looking around and everyone was saying oh nothing will grow here it's too cold and the apple trees and things that we did grow weren't very good and I figured the most yards in Edmonton were a spruce tree a, a, a poplar tree and, and a, a birch tree well why not put in fruit trees instead and have a little fun I um, worked as a, a diagnostic pathologist for the Alberta, for Alberta agriculture so I was consequently, not only I worked with field crops like wheat and barley and canola in particular, that was my main job, but I diagnosed things like diseases on apples, on plums, uh, cherries, uh, fruit, vegetables and vegetables in the garden. So I did all this and I got to find out that uh, one friend of mine had a deal with a cherry tree that uh, had huge crops of cherries. Now I tried to grow cherries previously and they never did very well. They just didn't grow here, they were from Minnesota. Despite that, being cold tolerant, they just weren't very good. Then I found this fantastic cherry tree in Sherwood Park that had hundreds of pounds of cherries on the one tree. When I first saw the tree, I thought, oh my God, what is this, you know? And I checked it out, was it a meteor or a North Star, two Minnesota varieties? No, it didn't fit that, it was much bigger and much, much heavier bearing. And then I asked the guy, the fellow who had the tree in Sherwood Park, where did he get it from? And he said he got it off of Mrs. Bogward, who, an old lady who lived up on Horse Hill, what is now the uh, federal penitentiary. So when I got there, the, the land was already requisitioned and she was moving from that house. And she said, well, I could have all the uh, cherry tree suckers I needed. So I dug up a few of them and um, I moved them to, um, to a farm site in Tofield. And um, over the years, checked these trees and lo and behold, they grow vigorously and phenomenally and uh, they didn't winter kill at all. And within a few years, these so-called, uh, well, cherry trees that I couldn't identify initially, started bearing heavy crops of cherries. So by the time I moved back into Edmonton in 19. Uh, 1981 in Mill Woods, I planted a fence, well, a hedgerow of these cherry trees all around the property. And within five to six years, they were bearing huge crops of cherries. And a lot of people say, oh, they won't grow here. They can't grow here. Well, in order to sort of expand <laughs> the cherry tree growing, I found a ways of growing them from root cuttings. And they grow true from root cuttings, by the way. Uh, you don't have to graft them. Um, this phenomenal bearing cherry tree, 
I give away to everyone who played rugby and everyone who's in agriculture. And uh, wherever they were planted, uh, including the uh, tree nursery at, uh, at the provincial government at, at Oliver, they grow phenomenally well. They grow very well, in fact. And within three to five years, they started bearing huge crops of cherries. This is Terran Forma, greening these airwaves with happenings and environmental news for over 11 years. So this is interesting. Why why did he give them all away? You know, I wondered that myself and I I did ask him what prompted him to to do it freely rather than to turn a profit by by giving these trees away which were clearly very valuable. So here's what he had to say. Well, well I mean, I did eventually sell sell some of the cherry trees because some of the people had taken five off me and then selling them. So I thought I'll sell them for $5 each or whatever, which is just nominal. But I just wanted people to grow them. In other words, I, I enjoyed living in Canada. I enjoyed Alberta in particular. And if I could do something for the local people and say, find them a, a cherry tree that did phenomenally well, so they'd be well off. Uh, what's, what's better than cherry pie? Or what's, what's better than, than cherry jubilee? I mean, they're even better than strawberries. Much better, in fact, more flavor. So anyway, uh, I, I think I've achieved that now because most horticulturists are well aware of it. As the sort of fame of the tree got round, people gave away cuttings themselves and gave away root pieces. And the province of Quebec bought, I guess, half a million maybe. And they quickly spread to the US and across Canada, the colder parts, from Prince George through Prince Albert, um, all the way into uh, to, um, uh, Nova Scotia, where now everyone was growing these cold-tolerant, cold-hardy, massive crop-bearing Evans cherries. And that last part there, I think, is really key. Edmonton is a very northerly city. We're one of the, we're, I think, the largest city of our size um, at this latitude in the whole world. We have a very short growing season. It's very cold until very late in the spring. Edmonton itself is designated as a zone three garden zone, which is kind of a funny little pocket of warmer growing. It's very cold and a very short growing season. So what's quite interesting is is that this cherry managed to thrive here based on these very harsh conditions. And I guess now, across the uh, prairies and into the U.S., there's probably eight millions, eight, seven million, eight million cherry trees, perhaps. That's quite a legacy. So besides their cold tolerance, is there anything else that made this particular species of cherry so popular? Yeah, there definitely is. I think. One thing that Dr. Evans reiterated over and over in our conversation was just how prolific his cherries are. Here's Dr. Evans. I took a tree back in the 90s, I think. I was about eight to nine foot tall and about eight to nine foot wide in my neighbor's garden. And um, we, um, the tree uh, was measured from flowering through first fruit set to full fruit set. And from that tree, we took 450 pounds of cherries which is phenomenal when you consider the fact that the average cherry tree in Wisconsin and Michigan produces a meager 50 pounds of sour cherries per tree. Now all of this to say, this one tree produces more than enough cherries for a single household. And that's how I learned about it in the first place. Remember my friend who had all of these excess cherries and didn't really know what to do with them. And uh, I ended up going over and 
um, picking enough cherries to make a pie. As a matter of fact, I've got a picture of the pie. I'll, I'll put it up on the website. You guys can all take a look and, and be jealous of the delicious baked goods that transpired. Could have just brought us a slice. Well, you're just going to have to wait, Hamdi. <laughs> They're not ripe enough. I'll be all back right. to that same tree. Don't you worry. So if the Evans cherry has been naturally bred over centuries uh, to have such a high yield, is it a leap to think that this could have some bearing on issues of like food security or sovereignty? Could Evans cherry's high yield be used to genetically engineer or modify other crops to have the same effect? I'm, like, I wonder, do you, did you get a chance to ask him about any of these hot button issues like GMO? As a matter of fact, yeah, I did, and uh, I was particularly curious since we don't often get people like of his experience here on Terra Informa. So I did ask him straight out, what do you think about GMOs? In Southeast Asia, about half a million people suffer from blindness every year. Well, the GMO there was taking uh, a gene from another plant species and inserting it into rice, a, a, a yellow gene that produced, produced a yellow rice that was high in vitamin A. And yet there was huge opposition to this. You know, I mean, opposition, it took the Pope to bless the rice in order to get it going. And again, uh, other examples of GMO was sort of cassava, which is a standby in Africa, as far as carbohydrates concerned. The existing ones are, are susceptible to virus diseases. Well, they've come up with a with a gene uh, from another species that they've inserted into this, and um, it's it's resistant, but they won't plant them. They'd rather let people starve than plant them. In my own country, in Wales, you try and grow potatoes, and my and biologically or, or, or organically, you have no hope because of late blight. But they brought genes from another related plant to a potato. They put a potato GMO. I mean, you know, when you look at it and say, hey, you can now grow potatoes that are resistant to late blight, pesticide-free, what better? China grows 20 times more potatoes than North America, and India grows 10 times more potatoes than North America. And I mean, would they like blight-resistant potatoes? You bet. Would they worry about it? Never. Uh, but in, in the long run, what we're looking at is 9 billion people. How do we feed them? So what did you take away from all this? I mean, you went on this adventure to find Dr. Evans, and you eventually did. I sure did. And apart from the one little side lesson that I want to chuck everything and just move away and live on a farm, I think it's really important to acknowledge the potential that there exists in genetic engineering, the ability to uh, modify certain fruits and vegetables to better withstand the impacts of things like climate change and um, you know, drought and other crop diseases. It's important to, to balance our concern and our, our you know, valid suspicion of certain GMOs with an understanding that we need to be more efficient in how we produce food for the world. But of course that the sphere of control that industrial agriculture and food corporations yield is also really alarming. So if we want things like blight-resistant potatoes or golden rice, as Dr. Evans refers to in the interview, then we have to be more aware of the potential social justice that exists within the technology and, and genetic modification and engineering. 
Until we have a critical mass of people who are all invested in a sustainable food system in Canada, and internationally of course, that there's very little stopping or companies like Monsanto and Dow from co-opting this technology and locking it away into proprietary technologies. It's something that really needs to be shared, it, that the humanitarian impact is just far too great for it to be controlled by very few and for profit. So what we need here is greater balance. Right, yeah. And the Evans Cherry itself, we have to be clear here, was not actually engineered. It was found, fostered, and distributed freely with love and passion. So it's not that it's a difficult thing to grow, it just takes a little bit of care and the fertile ground of community supporting its proliferation. In other words, we're all for progress, progress, but we forget the fact that uh, we need food to live, and we need quality food to live, and we need... Uh, a range of foods to live, from vegetables and fruits right through to whatever else we chose to eat. Well, thanks for sharing the fruits of your labor, Danielle. Oh, you're welcome, Handy. Really, it was a grassroots effort, so I couldn't have done it without your help. <laughs> For Terra Informa, I'm Hamdi Sawi. And I'm Danielle Dalgoy. That was Daniel Dolgoy and Hamdi Asawi speaking to Ian Evans about the Evans Cherry. I hope you found it as enlightening as I did. Next up, I'm plugging this year's CJSR listener survey. In the survey, you'll get to determine who should win this year's volunteer awards. CJSR is Volunteer Powered Radio. Volunteers serve on our board, keep our music library fresh, make award-winning news programming, keep our equipment running, and of course, spin music live for everyone out there in Radioland. What are your favorite shows? Who are your favorite hosts? Fill out the listener survey to let us know by Wednesday, July 5th. That link will be on both the Terra Informa and CGSR websites this week. Well, that's all for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Amanda Rooney, Charlie Blay, and Nat Hontar. I've been your host, Shelley Jodwine. Catch you next week on Terra Informa.